calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bullet Catcher, Season 2, Episode 6. The Irregulars. On my back, staring up at the slit of sky between the buildings, I judge the distance I fell and can't believe I'm alive. The sky is just starting to lighten with the first rays of morning. On the roof, three heads pop over the side, scanning the alley. They must not see me, because one of them points in the other direction and they take off running, leaping to the next rooftop where they disappear. The sound of their stampeding footfalls recedes into the distance and is swallowed up by the wind and the first sounds of morning traffic. I roll onto my side and manage to get up on one knee. It doesn't seem anything is broken besides the same ribs I fractured escaping the steamboat. There's no feeling in my arm. Blood streams from my shoulder, dripping off the tips of my fingers. Stumbling down the alley, I stop at the lip before the street and try to get an idea of where I am and where to go. The large brownstones have shrunk to squat, smaller apartments and storefronts. This street is mostly quiet, with only the earliest risers hurrying to work, newspapers tucked under arms, black umbrellas open overhead for the snow falling steadily. Small shops line the street, their shutters and doors beginning to open. Tobacconists, bodegas, newspaper stands. The smell of baking bread wafts from the open windows of a bakery. A flower girl wearily rolls her cart around the corner, sets it down in the gutter, and begins arranging and displaying her flowers. Pinks and lilacs and marigolds. At one end of the street, in an otherwise empty lot topped with trodden mud and snow, a circus big top stands darkly. The morning light is quickly brightening into a milky yellow. The street lamp shut off in unison. Spread out. Check every shop, window, and alley. The gruff voice calls my attention to the other end of the street, where another posse of gunslingers has appeared, 
combing through the traffic. Behind me, the alley terminates in a brick wall that I might be able to climb if I wasn't as banged up as I am. If I walk quickly, I might be able to fade into the growing crowds and hide in the abandoned big top until the gunslingers move on. The trio of gunslingers spreads out, checking the shops, harassing the pedestrians. If I'm lucky, they won't see me. I take a breath and walk as calmly as I can into the street. I'm bleeding badly from the wound in my shoulder, leaving a trail of blood in the snow behind me. I walk quickly, but hopefully not conspicuously, down the street, away from the gunslingers. The street is becoming more and more crowded, but everyone seems too busy or tired to bother with me. I cross the street and pass by the flower stand, where the girl leans over the cart, resting on her elbows, waiting for a customer to approach. When she sees me, her eyes go big, and she pushes herself up to look closer. Miss, she says, are you okay? You're bleeding. I'm fine, I say, picking up my pace. You really are bleeding badly, she says, coming around from behind her stand to follow me. I wave her away and keep moving. But now she's called attention to me, and the other pedestrians stop what they're doing and circle around me. Do you need us to call for help? One says. You should sit down. My word, what happened? You there, a harsh voice calls from down the street. You there, stop! I don't turn to see who is shouting. With nowhere else to go, I push through the crowd and make a beeline for the big top, hoping to lose the gunslingers in the chaos. The large tent takes up most of the lot, where a collection of wagons forms a semicircle at the other edge. Short, crooked steps lead up from the mud to the doors of the wagons, where yellow-orange lamps burn behind the steamed-up panes. Pushing aside the Big Top's entrance flap, I pass inside. Light shines in from a series of air vents making a circle below the peak of the tent, and from small holes and tears that cast splatters along the central ring, carpeted with sand, and amongst the battened down and half-packed props. Large shadows loom within the tent. There's a large teak and metal basket attached to an unrolled deflated balloon, itself shrouded in what looks like armor plates. I climb inside the basket and try my best to quiet my breath. Here, waiting in the still near blackness, the pain from the fall starts to catch up with me, and feeling starts to return to my arm in the form of lightning bolts and shredded nerves. The pain is dizzying, and for a brief moment I consider trying to escape out the back of the tent. I need a doctor, or at least a pharmacy, where I could find medicinal alcohol and the tools needed to patch up the wound until I find someone to extract the bullet. The flap pushes open, and sharp light flashes through the dark interior of the tent. Then the flap falls back into place, casting the space into darkness again. Footsteps crackle along the sand through the middle of the ring. I can tell from the sound that it's just one person. Maybe I can take him. The footsteps are close now. The torchlight scans across the shadows, back and forth. Here he comes. Count it out. Three, two, one. I leap at the gunslinger, but I'm slow, broken. He sidesteps easily and swats me in the side of the head with his pistol. I hit the ground and taste sand, mud. Gingerly, I touch a finger to my temple where he hit me. More blood. 
The click of the hammer drawing back gets my attention. I roll onto my elbow and look up into the glaring torchlight. The barrel of the gun points down at me at near point-blank range. Nothing to do now. This is it. The real it. I close my eyes. There's no rule that says I gotta face the end with them open. Sorry, Nico. I wasn't strong enough. Sorry, Lobo. Sorry, Cass. Maybe you're both dead, too, by now. All my fault. I should have known better. I should have known a good thing when I had it. Our little family. Cass and Lobo and me. We could have lived on the lamb forever in the Southland and still made a good go at it. <laughs> oh, well. That's over now. I wait for the gun blast, but instead all that comes is a dull thud. I open my eyes and the torch cocks suddenly to the side. The body of the gunslinger slumps to the ground. Someone reaches down and picks up the man's gun. Then he crouches and meets my eyes. You look like you've had better days, he says. There are others outside. They won't be bothering you, he says, and then he holds out a hand. I'm Umanak, but most people just call me Nack. Immaculata, I say, taking his hand. He pulls me up and frowns at the sight of me, covered in blood. And I think I need a doctor. Outside, the snow falls easy. It drifts down to the old cobbled street, covering footprints and blood, and any evidence I was ever here at all. Inside Nack's wagon, what he calls a vardo, it's warm and quiet. I lay in bed, propped up by pillows. After enduring a very slow and painful bath, my wounds were seen to by one of Nack's people. The danger, for now, seems to have passed. On the bedside table, a mug of tea cools. The Vardo's oil lamps reveal the golden red painted interior. The ceiling and walls have been intricately carved into a scene of a wooded grove, with birds alighting the branches and gold-embossed butterflies flitting from gold flower to gold flower. The flickering lamps make the images dance from light to shadow. From outside comes Nack's muffled voice, giving orders to one of his troop. A moment later, the door swings open, and a rush of cold air passes through the cabin, threatening the glow and blowing the steam off my tea. Nack enters and goes over to the iron stove. He opens the grate and pokes the wood inside with a metal pole. Then he takes a seat at the foot of the bed and studies me silently. He has round, dark eyes. He's stout and strong-looking. His hands are scarred, but clean. He's young, maybe no older than me, but his hair is already streaked with gray. He reaches into his pocket and produces a piece of paper. I know what it is before he shows it to me. He tosses the wanted poster onto the blanket between us and says, you must have done something awful bad to warrant a bounty like that. I stare into his eyes, measuring his intent. Or maybe I just pissed off the wrong people. 
The corner of his mouth turns up in a slight smile before quickly flattening out. Is that what happened? I nod. When the land is corrupt, the lawful will be labeled outlaws. You sound like a teacher of mine. He must be a pretty smart guy, he says, the smile returning to his face. It's a thing my parents used to say. He takes the wanted poster, crumples it into a ball, and throws it into the stove fire. Then he turns back to me and says, So why don't you tell me who you are and why the gunslingers want you dead so bad? I don't know where to start. Why not the beginning? It's cold outside, and neither of us is going anywhere soon. Hours pass. Most of Nack's troop have moved into his Vardo to hear my story. The light outside has grown dim, and the air inside has become close and hot with the crowded bodies. The stove fire has been allowed to burn to embers. A golden light illuminates the faces of my audience. It reminds me of childhood, when Nico and I huddled under the low ceiling of our blanket fort, the dark driven back by candlelight, and Nico weaving stories for me until I fell asleep. I've told them nearly everything, starting with Nico rescuing me from the fire when we were children, right up to when I broke into their big top trying to evade the gunslingers. And in return, I've learned a bit about each of them. Nack tells me how he inherited the troop, which he calls the Irregulars, from his parents, who had inherited it from his mother's parents. Then there's Eos and Zeph, the brother-sister highwire act, who escaped a religious cult when they were young and found a home with the troop. And Kef, the strongman, who was a sailor until he met up with Nack, and who claims to have fought off an eight-armed monster he calls a kraken with nothing but a harpoon in his wits. And peeking out from behind the crowd is Rado, or Rado the Mysterious, as the posters for his act proclaim him. He's a stage magician who claims to have real powers gifted to him by the gods and the power to communicate with the dead. There are over 20 people in Nack's troop, and most of them have managed to squeeze into his Vardo. And now, with my story at an end, they relax sitting back in their chairs or filing out of the Vardo for some air or a smoke or to chat. They wear the same expression as one might after a hearty meal. Many of them shake my hand before leaving, and Nack shows them each to the door, laughing and chatting. They like a good story, he says, turning back to me. The only ones left are him, myself, and an older woman whose name I don't know. She lingers by the door in a narrow space where the lamplight can't reach. All I can make out is her long, braided silver hair and wide build. You must be exhausted, Nack says. Best to let you rest. But first, I want you to meet someone. The woman at the back of the Vardo stands and comes closer. Her wrinkled face is zigzagged with scars. Deep, angry gauges cross her lips and the bridge of her nose, which looks like it's been broken and reset countless times so as to become permanently crooked and smashed. She stands at the foot of the bed, her hands behind her back. She wears overalls and round glasses with a crack in the lens. She has the kind of face that looks like it never learned how to smile. The hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. 
This is Mallory. Mal, Nack says. She's like you. She's a bullet catcher. I look up at Mallory. She glowers down at me, tilting her head one way and then another, as though judging the scars on my face, as though divining the history of each one and finding them less than her hopes. Then she extends a large hand, leaning over me to reach. I take it in mine. She squeezes and lets my hand fall. It's a long time since I come across a young'un claiming to be a bullet catcher, so you'll have to excuse me if I seem suspicious. Her voice is the scratch of a needle across a music cylinder. It's a voice from deep in the Southland. I'm no liar. She cocks her head. <laughs> I doubt that very much. Though maybe you are telling the truth about this. She nods to Nack before turning to leave. Nack watches her go. When the door slams closed, he turns back to me. His cheeks are puffed out and his eyes are comically big. Yikes, he says, letting out his breath. Not how I thought that would go. Mal's a bit of a crank, but she means well in the end. I don't trust her. I'm staring at the Vardo door. But when Nack doesn't say anything, I turn to face him. He's sitting in a chair by the bed, staring off into the darkness, creeping through the cabin as the light fades. Trust is all we have, he says after a moment. It's what binds us as a troop, as a family. If you're going to remain here, you're going to have to trust us. I've only trusted a handful of people in my entire life. He turns back to me and smiles a tired smile. Good, he says. Then at least you know how to do it. Trust is a leap of faith. There's a lot of hope in it. He rises and throws another log into the stove, renewing the warmth in the cabin. At the door, he turns and says in a quiet voice, People like us, people who know hardship, depend on hope. There's no promise in anything else. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. That night my sleep is dreamless, restful, and black, before popping like a balloon the next morning. The surgeon's drugs have worn thin, and my body aches and cries for relief. The light streaming in through the Vardo's small windows makes the cabin glow a piercing gold. Outside, Knack barks commands to someone in the troop. A moment later, the Vardo door bursts open, and in comes Knack. Mal follows close behind, wearing the same stony expression of the night before. The look in Knack's eyes makes me sit up in bed. I only register the pain a moment later and slump down on an elbow. What's happening? It's your friends, Nax says quickly. They're talking about it on the radio. He flips on the radio. It crackles and a warm buzz fills the space before a voice fades in. Broadcast repeats. Two fugitives wanted in the sinking of the steamboat northward bound have been spotted in the steel district west of the river. Authorities and gunslingers are currently in pursuit. If you are in the area and... Nack turns it off. I'm already rising out of bed, trying my best to ignore the feeling of my skin pulling against the sutures and my fractured bones shifting against one another. What are you doing? Nack asks, his hands in the air like he intends to keep me from leaving. What do you think? Where the hell is the steel district and how can I get there? You're in no... You're plumb in the middle of it. Mal cuts him off. They can't be more than blocks away. Minutes later, we are careening through the streets in one of Nack's horse-drawn wagons. Mal, Nack, and I, along with what feels like half of the Irregulars, are crowded into the small cabin, like a clown car. I'm squeezed into one corner, hanging my head out the window, looking for Cass and Lobo. The wagon hurdles around a street corner, sending pedestrians scrambling to get out of the way, then crashes into a fruit seller's cart, throwing oranges and apples into the air. It's late morning, and the street is crowded with people. Daylight glares off the wheel-worn cobblestones and the glass shop fronts. I'm dizzy from the speed and the light and the pain of my broken ribs squeezed against the side of the cabin. My hands and feet buzz. The light closes in at the edges of my vision. The carriage skids to stop, waking me from my stupor. The doors open and the passengers spill out, and suddenly I can breathe again. I turn and there's Nack looking at me with concern on his face. What's going on? I ask, my tongue feeling clumsy in my mouth. Mal thought she spotted your friends. You okay? You looked like you were about to pass out. I'm fine, I mutter, barely registering Nack's words. I push past him and climb down to the cobblestones. A crowd is gathered at the end of the street, blocking the intersection. Beyond them come familiar sounds of shouting and gunfire. 
The adrenaline is surging now, and the pain in my ribs is gone, and my hands feel quick and ready. I run to the end of the street and push through the crowd, tumbling out on the other side into the intersection. Someone catches me, and when I look up into the man's face, I recognize him instantly as a gunslinger. He's looking down at me with eyes narrowed against the high morning sun. His bare arms are lined with gunslinging tattoos. This is it, I think. I'm caught. But then he just helps me back up and says, Stay back, miss. There's dangerous folks about. Up the street, a buggy makes a sharp turn around a corner and comes speeding our way. Two more buggies make the turn and follow close behind. Gunslingers hang out the open doors and windows, their shooters like captured sparks in their hands as they take aim and fire at the lead buggy. I shield my eyes against the glare and see them. Cass behind the wheel of the first buggy and Lobo standing up in the back, facing their pursuers, hurling back the volleys of gunfire. Then comes a sound like something between a loud snap and an explosion. The rubber of Cass and Lobo's back wheel shreds and flies through the air. Cass tries to adjust, but it's too late, and the car goes into a spin. The crowd scatters as the car careens toward us out of control. The last thing I see is Cass and Lobo leaping from the vehicle, and then I'm swallowed up by the crowd trying to get away. There's an explosion and more gunfire, and I can't see anything because of the sea of people rushing every which way. People are running all around me, knocking into each other, pushing each other to the ground. I'm forcing my way against the current, trying to find my way back to the intersection. But there are too many rushing bodies. A woman passes, hitting me in the side of the head with her elbow. Seeing stars, I stumble into the path of a heavy-set man in a sweat-stained waistcoat. He doesn't even seem to notice when he tramples into me, spilling me to the floor. I try to stand, but it's no use. As soon as I get to my feet, I'm knocked into again. The ground rumbles with the stampede. I'm kicked in the gut and in the back, and I can taste blood in my mouth, and I can't get any air. All I can do is cover my head with my arms, squeeze my eyes closed, and wish it to be over. Then I'm being lifted up and carried, and when I open my eyes, I recognize Nack's tattooed arms around me. Let me go! I yell, squirming in his grip. He sets me down. His face is screwed into a look of concern. I push by him and run back to the intersection. The crowd is mostly dispersed, and the intersection is clear. Cass and Lobo's buggy lies on its side, the motor whirring loud and useless. The back wheel, the rubber shredded like shrapnel all around, spins like a top. A posse of gunslingers jogs past the wreck and disappears behind a building. Following on their heels, I turn the corner and stumble over a gunslinger lying dead on the sidewalk, a hole in his head and a shooter still in his hand. Getting to my feet, I look up and my blood runs cold. The world spins. There, only yards away, surrounded by gunslingers, are two bodies already covered in blood-stained white sheets. A paddy wagon stands wall-like in the road, blocking off traffic. Slumping against the brick wall, all I can do is watch in shock. Then the door to the paddy wagon opens, and out steps Nico. The wind picks up the ends of his coat, and he sticks a cigarette between his lips and lights a match, shielding it with his hand as he brings it to his mouth. When he looks up, our eyes meet. His face is dark, unshaven, tired-looking. 
my fingertips tingle with expectation. No, with the hope that he'll go for his gun. But he just stands there and stares at me and doesn't do anything. Then a tall man in a derby hat and a long black coat, another gunslinger, I guess, comes up to him and he turns and it's almost as if he's forgotten I'm here. And for some reason, that hurts more than if he had tried to kill me too. And then it's as if I'm floating above my body, watching as I pry the shooter from the dead gunslinger's hand and raise it in Nico's direction. Nack grabs me from behind, wrestles the gun out of my hand, and I'm pulled back into my body. Suddenly, I'm surrounded by irregulars shielding me as Nack pulls me back around the side of the building and into the wagon. By then, I've stopped struggling and let them carry me away. Away from Lobo and Cass. From my only family. I sit on the bench, again squeezed against the bodies crammed into the small cabin and the wall. Mal sits on the bench opposite, staring at me unblinkingly. Her eyes are deep wells of black, framed by her glasses and wrinkles and scars. She says nothing. Suddenly, I feel exhausted. I let my head fall back against the side of the cabin and watch the street rumble past. I watch the people going about their day as if the only two good people in the world hadn't just been shot dead a few blocks away. And I hate them for it. Every last one of them. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 2 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Marco Palmieri, and executive produced by Molly Barton, performed by Inez del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona.